Hello world, welcome to Political Worldview Podcast, February 8th, 2016, the EU referendum and Julian Assange edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham, being beaten down by storms today. Joined as usual by my co-host, Kristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hello, Kristalia. Hello, Adam. Hello, world. And by Scott Lucas, a professor of international politics and editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview. How are you, Scott? I'm surviving. Hope you all are as well. Our two topics this week. First, an outline emerges of the deal with Europe, with which David Cameron will be going into the referendum later this year on Britain's EU membership, and everyone tries to work out who in his party will be with him and against him. Is he going to pull this risky manoeuvre off? Second, Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks founder who's been holed up in Ecuador's London embassy since 2012 to avoid being sent to Sweden to face questioning in a sexual assault investigation, wins some support from the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. Is he a victim of politically motivated persecution or a fugitive from justice? And more concretely, will he ever get out of Knightsbridge? The first specific details emerged last week of the deal Prime Minister David Cameron is likely to get from the European Union at the end of his renegotiation of Britain's relationship. When it comes, the deal will be the basis on which the country votes on its EU membership, likely later this year. Items in the package included the right to deny in-work benefits for four years to those immigrating to the UK, but only for a temporary period as a so-called emergency break, that's the phrase that's been doing the rounds, and only if other EU members agree. There was also a promise to incorporate in a future treaty an explicit British exemption from the idea of ever closer union and somewhat more vaguely an agreement in principle that non-Eurozone member states should have some way of blocking business regulations agreed within that block. Two more weeks of negotiation now follow to produce the final agreement within these parameters. The reaction on home soil was, well, how to, how to put it, mixed. Um, the Eurosceptic press battered the Prime Minister, as only they can do, for negotiating only feebly weak concessions from the EU. But there were slightly more hopeful signs at Westminster that he might be able to keep high-profile fence-sitters in his own party, like Theresa May and Boris Johnson, on board. So, Scott... It seems pretty hard to dispute whether one's Eurosceptic or not that the content of this deal is, uh, it is pretty thin stuff. Um, but there are some signs that pretty thin stuff may be good enough. What, uh, what's your take on this? So you're saying the emperor's new clothes might actually barely fit, but well, that's enough. That if everyone is? really needs to believe that you're wearing clothes, <laughs> then you'd be surprised what they can will themselves to. I think that's my feeling about it. That's certainly what the Prime Minister's advisors might say to you privately, and probably European bureaucrats. This, this was on the cards for weeks, because you had the public grandstanding that Cameron was going to go over. He was going to tell those Europeans, you know, you can't push us around. We're Britain. We're, you know, fly the Union Jack. And the Europeans knew this was going to be the game, but they knew that in reality, we were going to have detailed talks on relatively minor issues. We were not going to have major talks to restructure welfare and insurance payments. We were not going to have major talks to restructure the arrangements for handling of migrants. But at the end of the day, those detailed talks would yield some type of agreement to talk about relatively small, specific points, but to exaggerate them as this is the great resolution. That's the way the game's played, and it's been played before. It's been played for decades this way. Now, the question, which I think you'll probably push me to, or at least if you're not, I'll pose it. 
is whether you're pushing yourself to it. <laughs> pushing yourself. Well, now I'm pushing. Actually, this is called kicking it back to you all. Is whether it is a sufficient resolution politically, not in practical terms, but politically, for Cameron to be able to carry the referendum uh, against the those who wish to come out of the EU completely. Uh, I don't know yet. What concerns me is that the arguments for staying in the EU are not going to be that there is a concession regarding business taxes. It's not going to be on whether there's emergency conditions regarding insurance or welfare payments. It's going to be on the fundamentals, which is, is it in Britain's economic best interest and political best interest to stay in Europe? Which is the weirdly narrow terms in which this issue has yeah. increasingly become uh, condensed in recent yeah. years. It's become this really small technocratic dispute yeah. about points of economic growth per year, as opposed to what I gather it is in many other European countries, a much more kind of political, ideological, and openly so commitment to European unity well, it should based be on the lessons of history. It should be both. I mean, the fact is the reason why you get economic growth, the reason why you get progress, or at least consensus towards progress, is because you have this political belief that you work together, you discuss, you have disagreements, you resolve. Whatever the problems might be in terms of the EU as a bureaucracy. But of course the government is loath to embrace that because they feel like they'll get onto a terrain where you get all the screamers will come in and talk about the Queen's head no longer being on the coins, mm-hmm. the Union Jack being taken down and with the the EU's gold stars on the blue background, yada, 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 yada. And they have, Let's uh, just say that is, the, that is the, the other face of the debate. Yeah. And, <clears throat> I mean, it's not just a, a, a kind of irrational fear that the, the pro-EU camp has. The, well, I, no, it, that's, that's the politics we know will come up. Yeah. But I, I continue to be a pragmatist in that reading what is taking place and a pragmatist in terms of what you can put forward even a public which may not know the details of what's happening as being the core arguments. And that is, Britain has done far better Mm. in the last 40 years, having been inside the EEC and then the EU, than it did in the previous 17 years when it stayed outside of it, point blank. And even though the world has changed since the 1970s, it's even more, I think, essential that you stay inside the camp and work for change from inside the camp, even though I think the amount of problems that Britain is supposedly suffering are overblown. You still work from inside rather than work from outside. So, yeah, it was a fudge. That's why, you know, it was a political fudge. Everybody knew it was going to be a fudge. There are going to be no big sweeping agreements before the referendum. And now the question is going to move to how much Cameron can get away with portraying these supposedly grand steps, which are actually incremental, as being the ones that will carry the day in June, if that's when the referendum takes place. And I don't know that we can answer that until, until you know, for at least the next couple of weeks until this negotiation is kind of over with Brussels and we see how the propaganda machines on both sides right. start amping up. I think that's right, but if I was going to break it down to you, yeah. which way do you think those propaganda machines will ramp up? I think it depends on what's going to happen. You guys are talking about economic issues. But I think that the second kind of red flag is the refugee crisis. So I think that 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 the, that they're going to amp the propaganda machines are going to amp up, arc up according to what happens in the next month, two months. Whether we have this referendum in June or September is going to be important as well. 
uh, if there is a greater flow of, of it, I mean, depending on what happens in Syria. This and referendum won't be in September. Mm. It will it will be June, or, or they either go now or they go long. Which means, and that's primarily because they're worried about increasing numbers of refugees Correct. and mm. the impact of that on the result of the referendum. That's absolutely right. I, I think you're right. I think that's the wild card. I mean, logically, I would have said what the city is looking for, what Britain's business is looking for, that would probably determine the referendum because your propaganda machines are linked to interests mm. like that. And that combined with the fact that the anti-European folks are running a completely bizarre PR yeah, campaign are, they? where they're fighting well, each they, other. They are in an absolute mess at the moment. Yeah. Like one of the, I mean, it's, it's one of those uh, uh, yeah. situations where you feel like if you could pick your enemies, uh, sometimes that can mean that Derinting. your own skill uh, bar goes down in terms of what you have to deliver. Yeah. Uh, for all of the popularity of Euroscepticism in you know the, the British press and for all of its... Uh, force as an undercurrent in British society, if they can't get their act together to run some kind of convincing campaign, if you just end up with the crazies uh, in one camp and then a bunch of uh, extremely pro-business technocrats on the other side or ideological libertarians, then that leaves an awful lot of space in which to win the argument simply on the basis that you appear to be uh, the common sense and competent uh, participant in the argument, yeah. whatever the whatever the merits of it. So, with a lot of underlying resources to deploy in terms of political culture, um, it would seem the Eurosceptic camp may well be capable of messing this up. Which is funny because they've wanted this referendum for years. Um, indeed, UKIP comes out of you know a tradition mm. of demanding this specific thing, mm. and now we're here. Uh, they don't look awfully well equipped to deal with it. But having said all that, the refugees become the wild card. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's the one thing that I think Cristal is absolutely right, leads to uncertainty in my mind, because that issue can be played up and be so emotive, and you'll see broadsheets, or not broadsheets, tabloids make their some choice. Some broadsheets. And some <laughs> broadsheets, actually, would, some broadsheets. Say, yeah. yeah, the Telegraph, the Times. Times. These, these are not renowned for their high-minded mm. dispassionate analysis. No, I think you're absolutely right. Now, I think the Times and the Telegraph will go the way of, in the end of the day, they'll look back towards business in the city and they'll stick for a stay in. The tabloids, on the other it's hand... Oh, prediction, Scott, I'm writing it down. The tabloids, on the other hand, could play one of the other ways. They could go and look at you know the business interests, the economic interests, or they could say, look, let's just go for the provocative headlines, get the mass readers, whip up the whole refugee crisis to being the 21st century threat to Britain. Yeah. And we don't know how much that plays out yeah. in terms of the effect they have. Yeah. They've already before. started, the Daily Mail started yesterday with, with refugees, but also with uh, Polish migrants are en masse going to come into the country now that we, now especially, I mean, it was interesting because it was now that Cameron has, uh, has, has given us the opportunity or given Polish papers the opportunity to talk about this um, this uh, welfare state that Britain has, which they apparently didn't know about before. It was a really interesting, completely rational argument about how the next 12 months are going to be open the floodgates before this starts. Mm. Because if they know this is going to come in, then yeah. you better get in uh, as soon as you can, which yeah. is what we understand is the sub from the subtext of all these stories is what everybody in this part of the world want wants to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of... I, I, think I agree with Scott's opening analysis, which says that... 
you know, I don't think it was ever in much doubt that this is where we would end up. You know, I don't. I think I remember saying on one of the previous editions of the podcast that I don't think David Cameron went into these negotiations with any particularly clear sense that there was something he concretely wanted. Mm. It was all just a necessary ritual to get him where he wanted to be all along, which is to be able to campaign for Britain to stay in the EU based on the notion that he somehow fixed something that might otherwise have justified considering a, a British exit, because that fiction, which I think is what it is, gives him a better political story to tell uh, to tell the voters, um, even though I think I, I think David Cameron probably would have believed it was a better idea to stay in the EU regardless, even if none of this had, had ever happened. Uh, and now it's a matter of seeing you know how, how it goes, because if this is if this whole thing exists exclusively as a political strategy and it was come up with, I think, to try and tamp down some of the Eurosceptic sentiment within his own party as a kind of concession, uh, which he's now having to live with, uh, then we have to evaluate it purely on the question of whether or not it's going to it's going to succeed in in that objective. And he seems to be playing it okay at home so far. I mean, the media really did come down on him, but it was surprising how contained some of the the reaction from his own MPs were. Mm-hmm. One of the things he's worried about is that some big figure someone with clout, Boris Johnson or Theresa May, will, will swing against him in this. Um, and there will be grounds on which someone who wanted to do that could make the argument, because you know, there was never really any viable path for him to come back with any of the things that real Eurosceptics mm. want, uh, you know, major restoration of national sovereignty over all sorts of issues, mm. or things like immigration controls mm. of the good old-fashioned close-the-borders type. Um, and therefore... Uh, I guess he's made the right calculation that there's probably nothing he could have done to buy off the real Eurosceptics within his party. Mm. His hope must be that because so many people probably ultimately in their gut just want to find their way to voting to Mm. stay in and they needed some excuse or some narrative or Mm. something to, to make that seem justified, he has provided people with the opportunity to look very somber and serious, say that they have as many concerns as everybody else does, that they've thought about this for a long and hard period, but they think that what's been negotiated is a sign that, uh, that, 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 that soberly and sensibly we must, with a heavy heart and reservations, come down on this side. And if he can get that to happen with the big serious people in his party, well, then the rest of the campaign probably plays out as him against the, uh, the colourful fringe, and that's where he wants to be. So what was Johnson's um, op-ed about then? Was it a clear kind of missive to, to, um, to David Cameron? Was it a, I'm still sitting on the fence and I'm leaning slightly, slightly pull out? What was that all about? I, have, I haven't read the op-ed. I saw him ask his question in Parliament where he sort of in that weird, vaguely comic smirking way that he does, asked something about British sovereignty, and then I saw him talking outside his house, where he was saying there was much much work to do, and uh, uh, that it would be, I think he called the best of a bad job, or something that the Prime Minister was trying to make. Uh, but I think, I think he's trying to send the signal that he is, like I said, soberly and solemnly and with great uh, seriousness contemplating these issues and send a message to people who are Eurosceptics within the party that he's kind of on their side. Mm. But I find it very hard to imagine Boris Johnson with all of his you know, history yeah. of talking up the city of London yeah. with, his, with his roots as a politician in that part of the world, which is you know, very cosmopolitan and you know, I would find it hard to survive outside the EU framework, th- that he could somehow credibly and to his own political advantage jump onto the anti-EU bandwagon, it, it seems a bit of a reach to me. Unless he spearheads it. This 
I think is an interesting dimension beyond, including but beyond the referendum. Um, if Boris comes out to, to come out of Europe, if Boris does that, he's signaling a battle to become the next prime minister. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. the only reason he would yeah. conceivably do yeah. it, because he thinks yeah. it advantages his cause yeah. in that regard. And if it's really quite obvious to people that that is the reason why he's doing it, uh, and that, you know, because this is not someone who I think right. you could plausibly say has hardcore Eurosceptic yeah. uh, uh, credentials running through him like a sticker up, yeah. well, then that's not a great look to feel like you're deciding right. an issue this momentous on the basis of your own intra-party calculations of leadership. And I think you just reached the conclusion of this, because if he was to succeed, he effectively would become prime minister of Britain while taking the country out of Europe and then have to deal with the economic and political fallout. And I don't think even Boris is Boris is a calculated politician. So I don't think even he, with all his flamboyant tendencies, will, will come out. And I think that's going to be the same calculation that almost any big beast mm. in the Tory party is going to make. The only chance you're going to get is if you get a major conservative figure who's close to retirement, mm. right? And who basically says, I don't care what the consequences are for the party, and therefore joins the French to come mm. out. Yeah, I mean, there are going to be some. It seems, uh, you know, David Cameron conceded the right of cabinet ministers to take whatever side they want in this referendum, and it seems like there are going to be some. Ian Duncan, Smith, Chris Grayling, yeah. those sorts of people. But, I mean, even yeah. as I'm saying those names, this is like this is not only not uh, anyone's idea of a dream team of charisma and, and influence, but, like, these are these are people who carry no water at all, as far as I can see, in terms of swaying a political argument in the, in this country. So it, it is a question of whether or not someone who has, whether rightly or wrongly, that pattern of credibility uh, comes to the forefront. And then you can put Nigel Farage somewhere to the side of the, uh, of the announcement rather than having him be the face of it. I think we run the experiment on whether, whether or not everyone wants to vote for him and what he thinks. We have one more proviso, though. Because we all keep on talking ourselves into this would be like Britain will stay in, all the politics. We're in an era where politics sometimes gets upset, and I say that for two reasons. One is this government has a really unfortunate tendency to go with basically spin of the week rather than joined up strategy. So last week... Unlike their Labour predecessors. Of course, uh, we, we, we have to admire them. Yeah, for that. Last week it was uh, radical Muslim mothers that we had to watch. And today, it's that if we come out of the EU, then we won't be able to work with the French, and so the migrants are going to flood in and take us over. Border protection. Because so, so we have to work with... And, and you can already see that that one's going to backfire because every Eurosceptic is going to say you're putting, we're basically hostage to whatever the French want. Mm. So, I mean, this tendency is to put out these, like, quick, you know, like, every week on Monday, a new message. And then they jump to the next one. Not exactly the joined-up way to pursue this campaign. Add that to the fact that the Labour Party is not exactly, uh, it's not in array on terms of what it wants to do. <laughs> that is an expression that will stay with me for yeah. well, They are not in array. They're not in array. So wouldn't go must so, be would you say that we're in disarray, Scott? I wouldn't I would go that far, Adam. But, uh, <laughs> I think they're beyond disarray, all right? So that's what I probably would say. So and so, stake in the ground? And so political party, in other words, if political parties don't stake out, don't organize their messages, hey, in the era of social media, big media, such it as the tabs. Mm. It could all go badly wrong. It could all go badly wrong, yeah.
Well, I mean, that's the thing. I, I guess if I seem chipper while I'm talking about it, it's because the events of this week gave me the vibe that even though this is a shallow tactical <laughs> dressing up of some clarifications and some small measures as concessions to try and drag us over the line, that maybe that's going to work. Maybe it is going to be just enough. But I should, I guess, accompany that by saying that it is a terrifyingly risky gambit if you do believe leaving the EU is an unacceptable outcome. It's like playing a game of Russian roulette for one round to settle an argument at a, at a party or something. Uh, I mean, I tend to think that elected governments shouldn't have referendums on things unless they believe that either of the possible results is acceptable. Um, and uh, it would be preferable if David Cameron really does think that leaving the EU would be a disastrous thing for Britain to do, that he shouldn't risk it uh, simply as a tool of intra-party political management. Um, you know, and I'm not convinced that it even does that, i.e. resolve the argument indefinitely uh, for a long time, because unless there's an absolutely crushing yes, mm. Scotland has demonstrated that it's perfectly mm. possible to lose one of these things and still be as powerful a force as ever. Um, and there's always the chance that some big major news event comes up, something we don't expect, because let's face it, most people are probably going to vote in a very impressionistic way about this thing when it comes up. Um, but if we're assessing it on the assumption that this reckless gamble has already been made, if the bullet is already in the chamber mm. and the gun is to, to, to David Cameron's head, then I suppose I'm feeling slightly more bullish that he's going to get lucky than I did before. But I would prefer that he hadn't decided to play this game. Just as a footnote, if this vote does go for Britain to come out of Europe, Scotland will be independent within two years after the vote. Because okay, I'm writing this down now. So the time, the Times, and the Telegraph will be for staying in the EU, and Scotland will be independent within two years. You're going on the record quite the, well today, Scott. We because the, the fine people of England may decide that they don't want the European foreigners <laughs> running this country, but I suspect those up in Scotland will see this in mm. a very, di very different way regarding their own economic future. Mm. How do you feel about it, Stella? You, uh, are you feeling my irrational bullishness or are you feeling the, the icy contempt of the, uh, the logical mind? No, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of, of what might happen in the next couple of months in the lead up to it. And I'm with Scott on the possibility of complete irrationality and, um, and, and terrifying propaganda. Mm. But hey... Property in Portugal's really cheap these days, <laughs> so it'll all work out in the end. Yeah, what's up, Greece? Silver linings all round. Okay, folks, to be continued. Okay, it's time for number of the week, returning after an unexpected one-week absence last week, in which we take a digit connected to a news story and uh, chatter thereon. So, Cristala. What yes. have you got for us? Um, I look at you with surprise. What? I'm going first. <laughs> um, my, I have two numbers of the week. I like to alternate. Keep everyone on their toes. I know. You, know? you do. You do. 70,000 and 1 million. These are my numbers of the week. Two and numbers for the price of one. I know. I know. I'm value for money. My 70,000 is the 70,000 people living around northern Aleppo in Syria who have been bombed and shelled and will be starved and who have been so for the past five years, and who finally fled to the Turkish border crossing of Onjubanar. 
Last week, in the face of increased attacks by the Syrian regime on the ground, backed by Russian air forces, and Turkey's response, of course, was to kind of close the border, uh, not completely, but making making pretty clear signs that, you know, these numbers are unacceptable, and. And I'll come back to that in a minute because I also wanted to highlight a quote on Saturday from the EU Foreign Affairs um, and Security Chief Federica, uh, whose name I surname I always get wrong, Mogherini. Um, Good enough. Thank you. Who said that Turkey has a clear moral and legal duty to provide protection to the people waiting at their borders, which I think is oh, oh, oh. exactly my <laughs> response. Yeah. Um, sure, uh, uh, eyebrows were raised and snorts emitted uh, length of Turkey when they got that particular notice. Uh, it was uh, barefaced as a comment as you could make, I think, as an EU foreign affairs chief, um, given what's happening at the EU borders. So my so I think this is I mean this is a pretty important uh, event, and I think, Turkey has pushed back and said that it expects. I mean, the the backstory is that it expects that up to a million people from the from around that area uh, are going to start pushing into Turkey. In and the reason for it is, and Scott will be able to come in here. But there's been there have been efforts to capture Aleppo because it's been rebel held for a long time now, on and off. But but this is the most recent push with Russia's backing and. Aleppo, of course, is Syria's second city, uh, commercially very important. It's the main urban centre in northern Syria, and it is very close to the Turkish border. There has been a humanitarian corridor going through there, uh, which the regime seeks to close. It is significant, both strategically and symbolically, for the opposition and for the regime, right? So the regime has more or less circled it, is my understanding, Um and I think intends to blockade it. Um, and so th- we're going to see some, some pretty serious, I think, starvation um, tactics and siege tactics. And it's really a show of force by the regime in the face of these failed negotiations, I think. But, but the, the big story is, I think, for me, I mean, 70,000 people pushing into a now closed border, more or less, um, who are very desperate in a context of an EU that says uh, Turkey has a has a has a resp- moral and legal responsibility to look after its borders at the same time that the EU is is unashamedly securitizing its rhetoric about its own borders and militarizing it and sending in armies and talking to Farom and you know mm. and the hung- and and Hungary sending in you know armies and so on and so forth. So it's absolutely, absolutely joke at every level. On top of this humanitarian disaster and in in the face of what we're talking about, you know, this week when we talk about the migrant crisis in Europe and the possibility of that influence of that debate on this on this Brexit stuff. Scott, this came close to being a topic this week, as the uh, uh, the fullness of Christella's remarks suggests. I, I gather you'd like to donate your number of the week to the cause of discussing yeah. the subject as well. Yeah, I, I'd be glad to. Uh, Christella's. Do you have a number that you want to you want to hook yeah, in with? Yeah, the number is is three, and it intersects with Christella's in a very different, cynical way. 
two aid workers told a electronic uh, newspaper, Middle East Eye, that they had a conversation with U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry at a reception on the sidelines of the Donors Conference on Syria in London last Thursday. Not a great success by all accounts. Correct. The aid workers asked Kerry why he was not doing more to protect Syrian civilians who were being bombed by the Russians, who were at threat of a ground offensive, which in fact is not led by the Syrian army. It's actually led by Hezbollah. It's led by Iranian commanders and Iranian forces and foreign militia, including Iraqi and Afghan militias. And Kerry gave them a couple of minutes before effectively saying, what do you want me to do? Go to war with Russia? So no safe havens, no immediate ceasefires, no immediate access to aid for besieged areas. And this is where the number comes in. Carrie reportedly said instead that because the opposition, not the regime, because the opposition was not seeing sense in Syria <clears throat> and was not going along with the talks, there would be three more months of Russian bombing that would decimate that opposition and presumably civilians who happen to be in those areas. Mm. And there was a remarkable video that was circulated yeah. this week. Uh, I think it was taken with a drone of Homs, uh, yeah. looking like something. Uh, I guess the the, the post of yeah, yeah, I mean the thing it most brings <coughs> to mind is you know post World War Two footage, uh, which of course would be slightly higher, less less high quality um, of, of Central Europe mm. after you know years of artillery shelling and, and and bombing from the air. This place was utterly deserted, mm. destroyed. It was and and. There are other places like Jobar and Damascus, which are in that same state. And the quick reminder is, of course, half the country's population mm-hmm. no longer lives in their homes. So Kerry says, three more months of bombing. Why do I give you this number? Not a cheerful number of the week, especially following Cristales. We're talking about another 70,000 refugees this week, 350,000 in the opposition-held part of Aleppo. It's a divided city mm-hmm. who are at threat more in the countryside who are at threat. Yet the United States, far from doing anything about this, is now an accomplice, not just accepting, it's an accomplice to the Russian bombing on behalf of the Assad regime. And that's my number of the week. Yeah, well, oh, I almost wish it was a topic now because I'm not sure I would go all the way with you in terms of that phraseology. But if you would like to hear a top tip for the listeners here, if you'd like to uh, see Scott and I in visual form uh, discussing the issue of Syria on a panel. We, uh, we showed up to the University of Birmingham Student Organised Debate Society last week uh, and we talked about it uh, between ourselves and with a guy from Stop the War and with a guy from the Henry Jackson Society and that will be on YouTube quite soon. We'll post a link on our show page uh, once, we, once we have it. I'm going to uh, go to a story that uh, is, is less sad uh, in every way, except for one person, uh, which is uh, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. Um, I wanted. I, I, it would have been nice if we could talk about the uh, the U.S. primaries, which have actually finally uh, kicked into gear. Except for the fact that New Hampshire is happening before this podcast will probably actually make it out. And I figured uh, it'd be a little reckless for us to. <laughs> well, Scott's, very Scott's, Scott's very predictions are like a, a couple of <laughs> years away, at least. Whereas we would end up talking about things that we are uh, so sure are going to happen. Uh, 
and then we listen to immediately after it happened. So it seemed a bit, at best, speculative, and at worst, uh, uh, taking our careers in our hands or our reputations in our hands. But the one thing that, that was entertaining in the, uh, the build-up to it was, after the Iowa caucuses occurred and the Republican Party's uh, internal contest, I'm sure everyone knows, is an absolute dog's breakfast of uh, um, cross-cutting candidates and policy agendas, um, there is... Uh, a hope on the part of many who see themselves as establishment types um, within the Republican Party that when Donald Trump has fallen away and when everyone's realized that Ted Cruz is that much more hardcore conservative even than they are familiar with and they can't vote for him, a candidate will emerge who will be able to do business on behalf of the establishment while being conservative enough to somehow get the base behind him uh, and uh, uh, hopefully be a bit charismatic about it while they're at it so that they can take down Hillary Clinton on the, uh, on, on the turf that we all know she fights least well on, which is any kind of requirement to be charismatic uh, or to appeal to people on a personal level. Marco Rubio came an unexpected third uh, in Iowa, or at least an unexpectedly strong third, and this led everybody to believe. So the, the hope was that he was going to get a, a surge in the polls to, in New Hampshire, uh, that if he did that well there, then some of these other candidates who aspire to being in the establishment lane uh, will have to admit that they can't beat him and that they need to get behind one candidate. So Jeb Bush, Chris Christie, John Kasich, all these people would, uh, would, would dissipate. So this is the atmosphere in which the last Republican debate uh, over the course of the weekend occurred. So this was the context in which the... Um, the debate of the Republican Party over the course of the weekend took place. Um, and Marco Rubio riding into it with this expectation that he was now going to seize his rightful place as the leader of the establishment wing, uh, had one of the most spectacular malfunctions that we've had the pleasure of witnessing in a, in a national debate for quite a long time. Um, and it's one of the best kind of uh, screw-ups because it's not where you discover a new flaw about someone. It's more that something that everyone has been criticizing them for on some level uh, already and that's kind of on the, on the periphery of the, the consciousness of the world uh, comes into uh, crucifyingly uh, clear reality. Chris Christie, who knows it's all or nothing for him in New Hampshire, decided to do his thing and swing in like a, a big take-no-nonsense no, take no bully, um, hit him for uh, using canned talking points, not really understanding the issues, not really having enough experience, but having these 25-second uh, spiel speeches where he comes off like he has some superficial grit, but actually basically doesn't. Marco Rubio chose to respond to this under pressure by repeating, and this is where my number comes in, because I realize I haven't numeralized this, four, four times over the course of this debate, three within ten minutes, he used the exact same phrase in response to Chris Christie criticizing him. All the while, Chris Christie was somewhere between mocking and laughing at him. Um, the entire room was uh, in despair, and then Twitter... Uh, absolutely tore into him. There were a number of hilarious uh, tweets uh, um, about. Uh, uh, the, the, I guess the trope became that this was a sign that Marco, the the, the Rubio bot, uh, had malfunctioned. <laughs> that he is effectively an extremely um, capable machine that memorizes glib talking points and gives a superficial veneer of capability, but actually isn't up to uh, isn't up to anything. And uh, uh, he has very clearly 
immolated his reputation with the attentive and observing uh, commentators, if not the electorate. So we're now going to have to wait and see if becoming a laughing stock in the eyes of everyone who's watching closely mm -hmm. translates into not doing so well uh, when it comes to the uh, uh, the actual contest that matters, which is the votes. So Marco Rubio, you gave me uh, so much pleasure over the weekend. I would like to I would like to thank you. And you're four times uh, saying those sentences will live long in the memory. Uh, and that's it. On February the 5th, the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention declared they believed Julian Assange, 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 I'm never quite sure how to go with that. Australian uh, Assange. Assange. <laughs> had been, uh, well, arbitrarily detained. Um, Assange, that's, uh, that's their brief, so I guess if anyone's qualified to comment, you'd think it would be them. Um, Assange, for listeners who'd welcome the reminder, was the founder of WikiLeaks, a journalistic project that acquired and released a vast trove of secret internal US government documents in 2010. And in the same year, allegations were made against him of sexual assault during a visit to Sweden. Uh, and the government there requested that Britain, where he was based, should extradite him to face questioning. He fought that in the courts before presumably not fancying his chances in 2012 entering the London Embassy of Ecuador and requesting asylum. Assange claims that the legal pursuit of him is politically motivated and that were he to return to Sweden, he could be extradited to the United States for his WikiLeaks activities and possibly face the death penalty. The Ecuadorians accepted his case and he's been holed up reportedly in a single, single windowless room with only occasional balcony breaks ever since, fearing and presumably quite rightly that he'll be detained by British authorities if he sets foot outside. So what to make of this latest development or the prospects for resolution to this? years-long standoff. Well, I'm under instructions from my, uh, my, my co-panelists that uh, seeing as I think I have the choicest opinions about this, I should probably, I should probably weigh in first. My opening question to, to either of you would be WTF. Um, this is the kind of thing that gives the UN a bad name, isn't it? Um, I, I would have thought. But let me, let me take you to how, how, how my thought process worked in getting, get, getting me to, to an opinion on this. To an informed opinion of WTF? Yes. <clears throat> I think my first reaction when it came up, as it, as it has been for the last while, when he has his moments in the news was, Jesus, is he still there? Like, I keep forgetting that this is ongoing, but I guess easy for me to forget than for the people who work in the Ecuadorian embassy, I would assume. I mean, given the price of London office space, they must really believe in him uh, to be making this kind of contribution to, to, to his cause. Um, but it just seems like... Such palpable nonsense, his case um, for arguing that uh, he deserved the support of this panel. So it's so odd to me that people who I assume are well qualified in thinking about this issue would come to the conclusion that, that, that they did. Let's, let's put a couple of things, let's stipulate a couple of things before we, before we start. First of all, let's set aside the fact that Julian Assange is a phenomenally annoying person, because I think that is very evident from spending any amount of time uh, listening to him talk. Uh, listening to other people who've known him talk about him, just generally getting the mood music. We can't send people to jail for that, so let's put that to one side. Second, leave aside the question of whether or not he committed these assaults. We just don't know. This is not the place to litigate it. Indeed, uh, the Swedish government says they just want to talk to him. Um, they haven't even said whether or not they're going to they're charge him. But this whole issue rests, it seems to me, 
on the question of it's, whether it's plausible that, as Assange says, he has reasonable grounds to fear that once in Sweden he would be shipped off, shipped off to the United States to face charges and related to, it, to the Wikipedia activity. And unless I'm missing something, that just makes no sense. Um, you know, he was happy to go to Sweden uh, and no one arrested him or extradited him. Um, he was content to be in the UK at the time when these uh, charges got made. And the UK, as far as I understand it, has a very good relationship with the United States, would be as likely or more likely than Sweden to extradite somebody who has, uh, who has committed, uh, or who was uh, accused of having committed these, these sorts of crimes. Um, it doesn't seem clear to me why, if the United States, which hasn't even filed an extradition request, to be clear, although they would be, I guess, reasonable in doing so, given they think he has committed crimes, hasn't been, it's not at all clear to me why, if the United States wanted to extradite Julian Assange, they would need him to be shipped from the UK to Sweden in order to be sent over, unless there is some imagined secret corrupt nexus that the Swedes only are at the heart of, uh, to, to, to hand him over to them. Um, Surely the UK government could, uh, could, could have arrested and extradited him. Surely uh, the only rationale, it seems to me, for him to have gone down the road he has, accompanied by some delusions of grandeur, perhaps about his relative importance to, to people, is that he doesn't want to face these charges in Sweden. He knows that he has a certain kind of profile and that will make it marginally more plausible than it would be for somebody else to, uh, to, to dress this up as a political persecution. I mean, I don't doubt that the United States does want to try him in charge and I wouldn't recommend you go on holiday there. But this just seems to be uh, a very elaborate and implausible sequence of events that he is positing that are much... Uh, that explains something that's much easier to explain by virtue of the fact, by reference to the fact that the Swedish government wants what it says it wants, and that everything else is purely speculative. I mean, the the the, the one thing that I would say in addition to that about this latest piece of news is, you know, what does this say about whatever the panel is that came up with the verdict that they did? It kind of confirms some of the worst prejudices that swirl around uh, or swirl around. They could swirl uh, the prejudices that swirl around. Uh, about the competence and balance of some parts of the UN when it comes to human rights type cases. This idea that they alight on weird cases that don't seem to make sense while turning a blind eye to you know, vastly, vastly worse things. Joshua Rosenberg in The Guardian wrote uh, a really great piece uh, about this from a legal perspective. But look, if anyone's playing politics in this affair, it seems that the big strongest case is against Ecuador, uh, which decided that this was an opportunity for them to grandstand about uh, their standing up to the hegemonic tyranny of the United States. Um, Rather than, uh, rather than the Swedes or the UK, who both seem to have applied what looked like the standard procedures for dealing with somebody who's been accused of a crime. And, um, you know, maybe he is vulnerable to some sort of punishment of the sort that he speculates on in the United States. But in this specific instance, the idea that this is all about getting into the United States doesn't seem to make a great deal of sense. As a sort of side note, I might say it also, I also wonder how long it goes on for, because is in danger of spending more time in this embassy than he would have done if he had been tried and convicted of the things he's, he's accused of. So uh, for even from the point of view of raw self-interest, it seems, uh, it seems uh, like it's getting beyond the point where he would have to call it a day. So that's my, that's my five cents about all this. Uh, not a fan of Julian Assange, not really convinced about this case, and slightly 
troubled, more than slightly troubled, that the UN's inserted itself in such a way that, you know, that, that undermines all its credibility, or this part of its credibility. Who wants to push back and tell me that I'm, in fact, uh, wholly blind to the international conspiracy against Julian? I want to admire your relentless logic, your relentless line of logic. <coughs> you missed a calling as a lawyer, Adam. <laughs> you really did. You really did. But Scott looks like he's got some thoughts, capital T, as well. Julian Assange could not exploit the context if there was no context to be exploited. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're getting into formal logic here. I'm going to start drawing <laughs> at, a diagram on the page. At the time that he took shelter in the Ecuadorian embassy, whatever you think about his specific case, which Adam has dissected quite effectively, the United States had put away a private uh, Chelsea Manning for an extended prison term after keeping the private in solitary detention under very arduous conditions. The United States government had tried to close down WikiLeaks by putting pressure on financial institutions, by trying to starve it of funding. The U.S. had been, in recent years, complicit in moving people around the world without formal extradition <clears throat> treaties, both into the United States, think Guantanamo Bay, but also out of the U.S. into other countries as well. So we could say that it's beyond the realm of plausibility that Assange would have been moved from the U.K. to Sweden and then Sweden to the United States. We could say that, but certainly... Why do had... it that way? Why, why, would, why would anyone who wanted to accomplish that goal not just file a request that he be extradited for those crimes. Well, because I suspect Julian Assange, I suspect Julian Assange is a bit paranoid, and I suspect it's paranoia born out of some events that had occurred. On top of what you argued, which is no one wants to stand trial for sexual assault, mm. either. Um, what the United States would not do at the time was make a clear and definitive declaration that they would not seek. Assange. Now, this would have settled it, right? He goes back to Sweden. He faces the charges. They would not make that clear declaration at that point. And I know there's reasons why they won't make a clear declaration. I mean, what, what, what right does he have to make a demand of that kind of, of, of the U.S. government uh, be, simply to return to answer in police police inquiries? Of because when you're carrying out a legal process for extradition, to face it, you need to be very, very clear on the letter of why the extradition has taken place. You need to make sure that the documentation is in place between the U.S. and Sweden. There were questions, by the way, at the time about whether the documentation was being handled properly as well. I'll get into that at this point. There were issues about what's being drawn up. Now, in the context that you're dealing with, that extradition has got to be clearly defined in terms of the charges that he's going to face or the question that he's going to face. And you could, oh, yes, I'm sure they would do it. I'm sure they'd do it. I'm sure they'd do it. I'm just telling you that there were cases in which there had been an abuse of the legal position regarding a number of people. And if Assange is using this as an excuse, mm. I'm not defending Assange, what he may or may not have done. I'm just saying the U.S. had been putting pressure on him and his organization, right? Mm. And he could use that. This is another example, in other words, in where that so-called war on terror, which became a war on groups as a reminder who challenged 
the war on terror. Because whatever you think is right or wrong about WikiLeaks, that information that they revealed was very informative about abuses of authority by the U.S. government in a number of circumstances. This is a case where the war on terror perverts, corrupts, poisons the legal processes we talked about, and Assange years later can exploit that. Just as a footnote, remember the Obama administration has never renounced, never renounced rendition, and indeed they have fought court cases that have challenged rendition. Will they seek the rendition of Julian Assange? Yeah, probably not. But well, it would certainly save time because uh, if they were prepared to do that, they wouldn't have had to go through the elaborate conspiracy of getting him charged with a, or, or investigated for these crimes in Sweden um, because they could just have lifted him and taken it and taken him elsewhere. It must be a very legalistic renditer uh, who, who has decided to, to think about this. So, but the key, I mean, just to return to my key question, why does he need to be in Sweden? Why, if he's fearing extradition for WikiLeaks-related crimes in the United States, what, why is it Sweden specifically that he needs to stay out of? As opposed to the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, in which he stayed happily throughout the whole period when he was fighting the extradition, because at, at a certain point he believes that this is a court process which is being set up for him to be returned to the United States, being given a veneer of legality. You can challenge that. I am not disputing what you're arguing that he could be exploiting the situation to avoid it. What I'm saying here is is that. We are in a position where the past decade of abuses of legal authority have allowed Assange to take advantage of that process, or possibly to take advantage of it. Let me add another footnote to you. So I think what's interesting to me beyond all this is that he started off with, is he still around? It's so interesting to me that WikiLeaks, it still exists, but almost is that moment where it's come and gone. Mm. I mean, all those documents are still sitting somewhere on various websites, mm. where papers, by the way, defied the U.S. pressure not to mm. host those documents. But in the age of where we've moved in terms of media and circulation of information, which has gone beyond it, there are people that are passing information far more <laughs> detailed than even what WikiLeaks had come out at the time. So... Are you saying that <clears throat> it precipitated a movement, it was historically important, or that it's, it's, it's been and gone? I'm saying we're in a 21st century world now in terms of the flow of information, where the old ways of trying to limit the flow of information, using legal authority to shut it down and so on, WikiLeaks was like, it, you capture that moment in time just before it turned mm. now. Yeah, it was it was the uh, the Edward Snowden of its time, I guess you might say. Except, to be succeeded by Edward Snowden. Yeah, <laughs> except Edward Snowden is, uh, at least as far as we know so far, a much more reputable and desirable uh, spokesperson for these kinds of issues. Where is he now? Uh, I think he's still in Russia, is no. he not? Um, pending some kind of ability to get somewhere else. Yeah. So, Cristala, have I, uh, Scott's context notwithstanding, uh, have I won you over to my... Uh, bafflement leavened with irritation at this case. Have you won me over? I, I admire the logic of what you say. Um, I'm going to very clearly sit on the fence between the two of you and, um, and join Scott, actually, in the importance of the context. I think that it was a particular moment out of which all of this arose, and I think that the, 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 the perception of threat was fairly credible at the time. I think that given, given his character um, and the claims, 
I, I think that it's perfectly reasonable that he's using this situation to exploit it, but that doesn't that doesn't put to one side the possibility that yeah, that this is a really this is really real fear, and you can't logic. Logic doesn't always win the day. Yeah, I mean, if I was him, I'd be very afraid uh, because I've, I've, I've done uh, outlandish and very high-profile things to thumb my nose at the heart of the American national security state, and that's not a good place to be. No. But, uh, um, and it's not, a, it, it's, not a logical, it's not a rational machine. It has not become a rational machine. And I think that Scott's point about the kind of... Um, the, the, poisonous implications or the, or the way that it's kind of what is, what is it the cancerous growth of that kind of war on terror and how it's deformed things like legal processes mm. is part of this you can't separate Assange from that broader context mm. I kind of I agree with you again Adam in terms of the narrow case that I wish Assange had gone back face the day in yeah. court or even just the interview. Or even the interview and contained so it. And, and, and I'll tell you why. Because I think, in a way, Assange actually played into the hands of those who did not want their acts exposed. And by that I mean that the story became far more about him than it became about what was in those tens of thousands of documents, hundreds of thousands of documents that WikiLeaks contained. So, Which is some of the reason why people who worked at WikiLeaks weren't crazy about Julian Assange. That's turning, absolutely thing, right. turning things into being all about him that's one of his right. strong suits. Yeah. And just a quick reminder, I mean, for example, we're talking about not just documents, we're talking about videos that were revealed, for example, that the American military were targeting and killing civilians in Iraq. I mean, it was mm -hmm. not accidental. It was not collateral damage. And yeah, that was the first time they really came to major public prominence before the, the big document dump, right? That collateral damage, I think it was, the video. Exactly. So the, vid you know, the, the documents about the use of private contractors in Iraq, you know, that was what we should be recalling, um, not to just beat the U.S. over the head, but just to talk about the abuses that had taken place in that era. And when the story becomes more about the person rather than the event, then those who carried out the event get off the hook. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is exactly the type of tactic where those who wish to get off the hook for what Edward Snowden has revealed mm -hmm. to make the story more about him. Um, but yes, yeah, I, I, I think the, if you want to talk about a victim of all this, a specific victim, you talk about Chelsea Manning, mm -hmm. who never had anyone, anywhere to hide, never had anyone to defend her, and therefore serves decades in a prison just for daring to try to get information out. And perhaps went into it, you know, more naively than uh, a kind of narcissistic megalomaniac journalist like mm -hmm. uh, um, Julian Assange did. And the question of exactly whether or not uh, Chelsea, then Bradley Manning, um, carried out these uh, acts of what the US would call treason and espionage uh, unsolicited and then contacted Julian Assange or indeed was encouraged to do so by, by WikiLeaks. This is something that has not yet really been fully fleshed out or explored. So there's a, there's a dimension there uh, uh, that troubles me a little too. Pretty much everything about Julian Assange troubles me. With all, with, I think I'm going to conclude by saying that with all due regard to the context, which is important, um, this is not a man that I, uh, that I care for and he's not someone that I would want 
to be the avatar for these issues. Yeah, <laughs> and I would not want him living in my house or my office for uh, for a four year period. Just I, I, I'm still waiting for the first photo shoot from the inside. I've, I've heard many ver- verbal descriptions. I have not yet seen it. it. It must be quite the sight. Anyway, I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the pod. You can also come and like our Facebook show page, uh, www.facebook.com slash pollworldview, where you can see uh, links uh, to articles, comment, etc. My co-hosts have been Scott Lucas. Scott, if people want to find you, where can that may- be made to happen? That would be on eaworldview.com, your best little website in the world for all the news you need to know, and at scottlucas underscore ea on Twitter. And Christala, what about yourself? They can find me on Twitter at at yikinthu, which is Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me at Adam James Quinn on Twitter, but I don't use that as much as I use Facebook, so find me there and you'll get a, a steady feed of things related to these topics. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulsus Department at the University of Rainy Birmingham in England. Back soon. We hope you will be too. Bye. Bye. Bye.